Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. My name is Aaron Laxon. Alongside with Robert Brining, beaming across the United States and around the world. Your 90-minute dose of hope brought to you each and every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You may follow along in the conversation on social media, Facebook and Twitter, PazIM, and at PazIM.org, that's PazIM.org. We encourage you to join in the conversation at 347-215-9442, that's 347-215-9442. 90 minutes your dose of hope starts now. Good Sunday evening, everyone. Now, that was not the sounder that was supposed to play, so we're going to actually play the appropriate one in honor of the show that we have going tonight. So let me play this, and we'll get right back to it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Aaron Laxon. I'm alongside with Robert Brining tonight. On the 13th day of October 2013, day number 13 of the partial government shutdown, we ask for you to join in the conversation tonight on Facebook and on Twitter, as well as social media, pauseim.org, in the pauseim social network. You may also call in at 347 215 9442. That's 347-215-9442. Tonight, we're going to have the honor of speaking with Robert Suttle, who was convicted under Louisiana's HIV-specific criminal statutes, and after serving a six-month sentence, was released in 2011. He would go on to become the assistant director of the Lucero Project, so we're happy to have him on tonight. And then we have Tammy Hawk, who is a part of the community organizer, or she is a community organizer for the community, HIV Hepatitis Advocates of uh, Iowa Network, or CHAIN. It's a lead advocacy group in Iowa working to modernize Iowa's HIV-specific criminalization laws. We'll also be taking a look at what's going on around the U.S. There are several cases that we want to take a look at. This week, what did Apple do uh, regarding fundraising for HIV um, programming? Let's take a look at that. And then a new study out this week uh, looks at the link between suicide rates and Sestiva. So we ask that you join along in the conversation tonight. Once again, join along on social media. That's Facebook and Twitter, PazIM. And at PazIM.org. PazIM.org. 347-215-9442 is the way to join in the conversation. Let your voice be heard. Your 90-minute dose of hope starts now. Good. 
Good Sunday evening to everybody. How are you doing, Robert? I'm doing excellent. How are you? You know, I it has been one of those weeks. For those of you who do not know, I am based out of St. Louis, Missouri, and we have our two games down in the National League Championships against the Dodgers. Go Cardinals! And today, the St. Louis Rams played, and we uh, won on that front as well. So I'm a pretty happy camper. That's right. You're so butch. I forgot a, about that. If it's not, I was going to say, if it's not that's soccer, as butch I, as I, get. I don't watch it. <laughs> Wait a minute. I saw you at a baseball is, game and a football game. Grr, I'm so butch. <laughs> that's as butch as I get. So how but I do week? love sports. and You know, it wasn't too bad. I mean, uh, you know, work was work, was work and, uh, you know, beautiful weather. You try to see the upside on everything. So... On this side of the dirt, and that's always a start. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So we have a lot to cover tonight. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, like the sounder said at the top of the hour, we have some amazing guests that will be joining us momentarily. Um, many of you already have heard Robert's story, but we encourage you to listen. Um, and we're going to hear what's what's new on the uh, criminalization, modernization, it's a mouthful front, um, Robert's going to bring us that, and then we're going to talk to uh, Tammy from Iowa. But we want to talk about some of the hot topics that's going on right now. So this week it was released that Apple had raised over $65 million for um, $65 million for the Red HIV AIDS program. What made me think of this was Dab Garner was wearing a uh, red shirt at Positive Living 16. Um, so Apple has raised more than $65 million which supports HIV prevention, testing, care, treatment in Africa. Um, the computer company has raised uh, about $15 million of that amount since 2012. The money comes from sales of the red branded products, which include iPods, cases for iPads and iPhones. And all that money goes to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Red was co-founded by U2 frontman and activist Bono in 2006. They need to do something because... Their products are kind of sucky right now. Hey, and I have an this, iPhone 5. <laughs> <laughs> I love Apple, but they just need to, you know, they need to do something to, you know, revitalize their brand. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So from our partners over at The Body, um, this was an article that I found from the 9th of this month, and it was titled, Sestiva and Suicide, Don't Be Scared, But Be Aware. So in it, it talks about um, the suicide risk uh, for those who are on Sestiva. You will know if you're on Sestiva or a Favarins, which is part of the fixed-dose combination of a tripla. Research uh, and the examination of four major studies involving Sestiva conducted between 2000 and 2010. It found that HIV-positive study volunteers who took Sestiva as part of their treatment regimen were about tri twice as likely to have suicidal thoughts or attempt suicide as volunteers who were, weren't were taking Sestiva. Now, I want to caution people. Um, now, there's three things to consider. The, the overall number of suicides were very low. So there was 5,332 people who volunteered for these studies, each of which spanned two years, and only about 22 of the volunteers attempted suicide. Also... Um, they found that the incidence of suicidal thoughts or attempts 
this did not happen right away. So for that new patient that just started um, uh, treatment, it was not something that was right away. It was something that was year, typically a year out from starting. And then also in these studies, the people who attempted suicide or had suicidal thoughts tended to already have other factors of depression or mental illness. They were disproportionately young, less than 30 years old, and they had a history of IV drug use, um, much more likely to have a history of psychiatric issues or psycho or, or being on psychoactive um, medications. If you'd like to learn more, you can definitely go and read the article, or we will post it in the chat room. Uh, we'll post actually all the articles um, that we're talking about um, in the chat room once the guests uh, come on and start talking. So this was one, uh, Robert, you probably do not know what Grinder is. No. But Grinder <laughs> is an application that some homosexuals use to find companionship. Was that pretty PC? That was a pretty PC way to put it. That's a good so way. So from to put our it. partners, well, you know, if, before you go any further, Aaron, you you um you're coming in a little choppy, and I think it's because you're using the mic tonight. Okay. Can you hear me better? Can you now? hear me? No, you're you're coming in real fuzzy. Nobody's responding in the chat room to let me know if they can hear you okay. But um, is there a way that we can maybe take a quick break and play a PSA and then come back and maybe you can switch over to your phone? Yes. All right, let's let's do that. We'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with with Aaron because I don't want them to miss anything. This is important stuff. And and if it sounds a little All choppy right. to me, I just want to make this clear, okay? All right, we'll carp. Okay, we'll be back. In. I brought it. 
there were several reasons why I brought this up. When I was in um, Washington this past um, trip, I noticed that whenever I um, purely was just doing some scouting um, on Scruff and Recon, and I found that there was actually a lot of people that were talking about PrEP, and there was a lot of people actually having good conversations, or what I would consider healthy conversations, on um, Grinder and on Scruff. And and so I just wanted to kind of, what has been your experience on Grindr? Uh, do you find that there's a lot of stigma being perpetuated on these sites, Robert? Um, I have rarely used the, the, the apps myself, but I, I know people who use it as a regular tool for recruitment, um, whether it be just to uh, connect with other positive people, or I know somebody on my soccer team who uses Grindr to get new, you know, gay guys in the area to come out and play soccer with us. It's a, it's a tool that's not just used for sex. It's also used for networking. And, you know, it, and I don't see too much discrimination about it. I see people who are willingly putting their status out there, you know what I mean, to educate others. Like uh, James Brennig was on the show uh, before last season, and he actually uses Grindr to promote you know, HIV awareness, and he has people ask him questions. And, you know, there's people that are going to be rude and that are going to be closed-minded, you know, and, and not be aware. But uh, it, it can be a tool that people can use to promote awareness. So I think it's, you know, it's an important vehicle. I mean, it may not be the best vehicle for everyone, but it's a vehicle. Right. Well, and the the other thing, too, is I found, uh, you know, I actually have a, a grinder account um, that I use for outreach. Um, and uh, on it, I basically, you know, put that I'm an HIV AIDS activist and that I am HIV positive, and uh, I'm actually logging onto it right now. And, it, and it, the, the, you know, the, the caption is, you know, do you know your HIV status? Um, asking about PrEP. Do not take someone's word that they're negative. One in four who are positive or unaware. And I've really found that I get a positive, no pun intended, you know, reaction from people who they do want to know what PrEP is. Maybe they haven't heard about it. So I, I think it can be another tool. If, you know, if we want to reach people where they are, then we have to use the things that they're using. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting comment. I will be sure to post a link to that article um, in the chat room for those who want to check it out. Um, Robert, do you want to talk about our guests that are coming on tonight? Yes, I'm so excited. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with HIV criminalization, these are laws that are put into place to basically discriminate people living with HIV for neither for either not disclosing or not disclosing their status, or for putting somebody at risk with actually not actually having transmission. Um, Robert is somebody who I admire for being so courageous and sharing his story, you know, about this. This is a difficult thing. I mean, coming out HIV positive is one thing, you know, that we all deal with, but being going to have to go through the justice system and, and then go to prison, go to jail for, uh, I believe he was in there for a few months, you know, to serve for this, it, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, Robert has become a friend of mine and somebody who I admire because things that he does, I'm not able to do. And that's why, you know, seeing people like, meeting people like him and, you know, you, Aaron, it's, we all have our own niche and, you know, there's certain things that we are meant to do on this earth. And I think Robert has found his niche. And, you know, later on we're going to be speaking with Tammy um, from Iowa, um, who I just recently spoke to on the phone today and, and 
she sounds like she has a lot of great information and she's doing a lot of great work up there to fight the criminalization laws. So um, I can't wait to have Robert on. Do we have Robert on the line? Is that why you were? Uh... No, I was just uh, I was just asking. Um, the I actually found a very interesting blog this week um, before before we do blog, um, and it was the title of it was Twenty Five Years Prison for HIV Nondisclosure, Medieval or Appropriate. And uh, one of my Twitter followers uh, tweeted at me and let me know that they had mentioned me in the blog. Basically, what it talks about is it contrasts, you know, are these uh, criminal statutes appropriate? Um, you know, do they serve some type of, of uh, purpose to the community at large, or are they just basically medieval and draconian? And it talks about, um, obviously, it starts out with Nick's case, um, which Robert can get into more, and then it goes into Robert's case. Um, and it mentioned that, that we have specific laws in 36 states. Um, so I would actually, you know, encourage the viewers or listeners rather to um, check out the article and to give us their feedback. You know, give the author of this blog their feedback. Um, you know, for any of our listeners who believe that HIV criminalization does not impact their lives, I would say that's a very naive um, standpoint. It affects all of us. Yeah, it's basically going back to, I feel like, the Salem Witch Trials, you know, where they're specifically targeting a certain group and, and, you know, it's stigmatizing and I think that it's something that as people living with HIV, it's important that we keep up with. You know, we can get lost in the lingo. Granted, I get lost in a lot of things, you know, things go over my head. You know, I'm the average person living with HIV. I'm not, you know, super, you know, book smart, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I have to know what, you know, the, the basics are so I know what, what, how it's affecting me and how maybe, you know, my sexual practices or, or my relationships, you know what I mean, how that's going to, you know what I mean, play with laws that may be or may not be in my state because it's state by state. You know, there's not one straight law throughout the nation. So I see that we have Robert on the line. All right, you so let's, go ahead and bring him on, sir. Yeah, let's go ahead. Uh, so please welcome our friend, Robert Suttle. Hello, Robert. Hi. How Hi, are you, man? Robert. Hi, Aaron. Hello. I'm doing okay on this Sunday evening. Uh, We're not taking you away from The Walking Dead, are we? Oh, no, uh, I'm not familiar <laughs> with that show, actually. Um, so there you are a lot of under a rock? familiar with Pretty much. I do good to keep up with scandal. Um, I'm trying to do better with that. So. Yeah. yeah. So you're just the man I wanted to have on the program, Robert. And I know that, you know, we had spoken uh, maybe a couple weeks ago uh, while you were on the road. And mm-hmm. since the time that we spoke, uh, it just seems that things specifically here in Missouri have really um, hit the fan, proverbial fan. Um, yes. We've had two major cases, and just to bring listeners up to speed, back in um, September, we had um, a person who is accused of um, spreading HIV. This is a media's account, actually. Um, his name is David Lee Magnum in Dexter, Missouri, and he, in his own account, has had sexual contact with over 300 partners. 
and he is currently sitting in jail on a $250,000 bond, cash only, um, for knowingly exposing uh, someone to HIV without their consent. It's a felony under Missouri law that can bring a prison term up to 15 years. Um, infection of another can bring a life term. Uh, police pressed their case Friday against a Missouri man uh, when they they say he tested positive for HIV in 2003, but he had more than 300 partners. Saying later he did not tell them because of his condition, because he wanted to, he didn't want to be rejected. Um, it goes on again. I will post a link to this. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, um, you know, because here in Missouri we've been trying to move forward with criminalization, uh, modernizing the criminal statutes. So then that last week, uh, we, I'm just sitting at home, and I hear a teaser for the evening news, and it says, Lindenwood University student accused of spreading HIV. Um, and uh, so now four more alleged victims have come forward in this case of a football player who went to a local university uh, St. Louis or St. Charles Detective Sergeant Todd Wilson said that as of noon on Friday, four people had come to the police saying they had had sexual relationships with 22-year-old Michael Johnson. Um, Johnson was charged Thursday with recklessly risking infection of another when infected with HIV, a Class A felony that's punishable by up to 30 years in prison. I have a problem with both of these stories, and I'm sure that we can get your, um, I, you know, thoughts on them. Uh, mm-hmm. Because for this particular person, uh, Michael uh, Johnson, I guess his name is, they not only outed him as a homosexual, but they also outed his HIV status. So I guess, you know, how much of when we see stories like this, do you think back on your own story of what you went through? And, and it, do you want to share that with our listeners right now? Uh, yeah, um, I've been following up and trying to update myself on these stories as well. Um, well, yeah, any, any time I hear a case about someone being, uh, arrested or charged, uh, based on their HIV, uh, status, um, I am constantly reminded. And, um, and of course I just think back to myself and it always, um, gives me this sickening feeling in my stomach because I'm like, oh, God, here's another person having to go through this confusion. And, um, you know, and I just can relate to all the feelings perhaps that that person may have. Uh, In fact, we all could um, in one way or another. You may not be arrested or charged, but, you you know, the feelings are similar in other situations as well. Um, You know, the, the one on David... Magnum, um, I, you know, the, the idea about the 300 partners, I, I, I'm I, sorry, I just think that's a little overkill. Uh, whether there's truth to it or not, I I, I, I just don't know, but I, I just don't buy that. And why at that point in time that he may have said that, I, I don't know. Um, the thing with his case, I feel, is that he admitted that he was HIV positive to the police, um, according to the um, 
affidavit statement um, that he tested positive back in 2003 while in Texas. Um, and that's something that I feel like he should not have done um, because that part of their investigation is to determine whether or not you are, in fact, HIV positive. And what Pope uh, gives challenges to this, even in both cases, is that um, on the HIPAA, you know, federal regulations um, does not allow people's records to be um, seized or whatever, unless it's by court order or whatever in certain jurisdictions, of course. Um, and so it's up to the prosecutor to, or the defense to make sure that that person is absolutely um, positive um, before they can make an arrest. And, um, and so I, I just... Well, I'm going yeah, to read this to you, and I, <laughs> I was just flabbergasted. I'm, I'm flabbergasted even as I read it now. Uh, this mm-hmm. was the original news report, and I, I guess this really highlights where we are with public knowledge, because I know you and I have had this conversation many times. You know, how mm-hmm. do we work on, on educating the public and getting policy change? And, and I know that you said, you know, it has to be something, both of it has to occur simultaneously. Um, but I think this is, highlights this, and this is a, media, a news media outlet that I work with quite regularly, um, and uh, I immediately uh, responded and rebuttaled their, their comments. Um, they, the victim told investigators he met uh, Johnson through social media, blah, blah, blah. He was, although Johnson was a member of the Lindenwood University wrestling team, instances of contracting the virus in this manner are extremely rare. Are rare. However, authorities recommend anybody who had contact with Johnson consider consulting a physician. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you there that the people are not as knowledgeable or as they think they are about HIV. And I think in, in terms of the Johnson case, um, the reporter, asked, this was during the press conference to so the prosecutor, the reporter asked, um, can HIV be contracted from wrestling? And then the prosecutor said, uh, I'm not medically or what maybe say medically or scientifically knowledgeable about that in that aspect, and um, I just thought that was well. I thought at first it was an okay question, then also thought it was a stupid question to ask: Can HIV be contracted through wrestling? But the prosecutor said, "Well, it is a pro- it's a contact sport." But again, people, we have to be knowledgeable about this disease and stop just going off based on the fear of it and. And another reporter, even in the same case, said that it was shocking, you know, that under federal regulations, the university was not allowed to inform, you know, people who at certain points may have been exposed to HIV from Mr. Um, from Michael Johnson. And then the prosecutor's like, yeah, that's very unfortunate that the law is, is like that those federal regulations are there that people cannot be informed. So I mean, again, you got media, you got prosecutors, you got university uh, officials that are not as educated as they need to be. They need to fine tune their knowledge on on HIV. So, do you want to tell us? Um, I mean, what brought you into this kind of work? I mean, it, you know, you I'm sure probably. 
you know, didn't imagine that you would be fighting to get these laws changed. Why is it so personal for you? It's very personal to me because um, 2008 was when my drama began, and I was arrested um, in the year 2000. No, yeah, 2008, that's when the drama started, earlier, spring of 2008, and then I was arrested by the fall of 2008 because they had to do, from the re- police report being filed of the accusation, uh, you know, they had to do their investigation, as I mentioned earlier, because of federal laws, they have to, it takes them a while to find out whether or not you're positive um, before they can actually make an arrest. And so um, how I come into this, um, I was arrested at work. I actually worked at the Court of Appeals for the state of Louisiana, so I would thought I was a law-abiding citizen, and until that day that I was arrested, uh, my life changed forever, and my I had to resign from my job. I was placed on administrative leave uh, with pay initially, but then they turned around and said, oh, we'll have to do this without pay, and so which forced me to resign. Um, and, of course, the court proceedings and hearings proceeded from there. On. And so 2009, I was eventually uh, convicted of intentional exposure to the AIDS virus, which is the title of the statute in the state of Louisiana uh, for non-disclosure uh, HIV status. And, um, and I was given a probated sentence, uh, which um, later it, uh, led to me having to register as a sex offender uh, because it's in Louisiana it's considered a sex crime. And... Uh, once we addressed the issue about the sex offender registration, uh, which was never mentioned at first uh, at all uh, during the court hearings or what have you, um, the court later determined, like, oh, yes, you have to register a sex offender, and by the way, you have to go to prison because that particular conviction required a mandatory prison sentence. Um, and so, so how long were you in prison for? I was in prison for six months. And, and but um, you could have been you could have been in there for how long? Oh, I could have been in there for at least ten years. Um, and, and and so for up to ten years, you could have been in there, and it's that just for not disclosing your status. For not disclosing my HIV status. Yeah. All right. So like we're, that's what, like that's why people need to understand that this is important. These are things that people struggle with every day that are living with HIV, telling people about their sexual you know about their HIV status due to being rejected and. This is very important that people start paying attention. So I'm just glad yeah. you're here. I think it's important that people, you know, learn about this and, and hear more about it because the more you hear about it, the more it's in your head, you know, the more you realize how it affects you. Right. Right. And to take it very seriously and don't take it lightly because the people feel like, well, I just close all the time. or I, Well, that's good. I mean, I think that's good for your own, you know, mental and well-being within yourself and, and maybe the people around you that you can trust. But um, there's a danger in also being open and disclosing because, you know, in the court of law, you know, um, how can you prove that you disclose that, you know, that doesn't, that type of um, um, defense doesn't really show up very well in court um, at all. I mean, it's really hard to prove. In fact, the burden of proof should be on the prosecutor to prove that you did not disclose um, but lately, it seems like it's been just the fact of you just being positive, um, which, as I said earlier, is what the prosecutor has to determine, that you are, in fact, positive, and that seems that all that is needed as a probable cause to have a person arrested. Um, and whether or not they disclose or not, I mean, I feel like that 
it doesn't really matter. And I think people don't understand that, that in mm-hmm. court it doesn't matter. And I think until they are in that position, then they'll see it. You know, you know, as they say, you don't believe fat meat is greasy. Well, it, it is uh, once you start biting into it and eating, you realize, oh, it is greasy, but it may not look like it. But anyway, um, that is the part that people don't seem to understand. They think that the mere fact of disclosing uh, is enough to save someone, and it may be. It, and it, but it all depends on other factors. I think that have to be that could be involved in that type of situation. Um, so it's definitely something to take seriously, and um, and these laws aren't going away. So it, it may not be you today, but it definitely could be you in the future. Just like me, I was five years since my diagnosis, and then here I am facing prosecution. So it's not like I expected it. You know, it, it just it can happen. Now, Robert, correct me if I'm wrong. You, I mean, you had disclosed to your uh, your 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 boyfriend at the time, your partner. And then you had subsequently, your your relationship had dissolved, and it had been a very tumultuous relationship. So, I mean, do most of the prosecutions that we see, do they stem from a, you know, where there's a breakup and the partner, even though they knew, now they say, oh, well, I'm going to get back to this person and say that they didn't tell me or, or whatever. Do we feel, I mean, is, that a, is there a high prevalence of that? Well, let me just say this. For me, because uh, I don't want people just to assume that I disclosed as best as I thought I would disclose to the to the guy that I was with. And I learned, and I know that issue, in a, that little issue there is something that we all deal with. And it's in that people way of disclosing, I may have one way of disclosing, but to the other person, they may not have felt that I disclosed uh, or someone else has disclosed. But and two, um, yes, this is one of just many um, um, situations that people can find. And then whether it's uh, someone that's upset with someone um, or just the fact that someone, and it may not be about uh, the relationship per se, it could be about other things or anything. If we felt hurt or, or violated in any way, then it, not people knowing about our status or having that knowledge um, I find that people try to go for what what is it that the worst thing and, and what's worse than um, a person being HIV positive and, of course, due to not them. But um, from the stories that I've read, because every time I see a story in the news, I bookmark it, so I have a whole listing of all these different articles, um, it appears that it arises out of some sort of relationship, whether it's a casual relationship like mine was or, or one of a more serious relationship. And um, so, and that's not just with gay people. That can be with man or woman, you know, two guys or, or whatever. So, um, so yeah. All right, fantastic. Actually, we uh, have a caller coming on uh, right now. Caller uh, coming from six four six. You're on the air. Hey, Aaron. It's Sean Scrib. Hi, Robert. Both Roberts. Hi. How are you? Hi, Sean. <laughs> Uh, I just wanted to, first of all, Aaron, thank you and Robert for continuing to, to bring attention to HIV criminalization. It is, it is so important, and I think in the last year or two, we've really made a lot of progress in making people more aware of it. Uh, just a couple of random comments. First, David Mangum in Missouri, this 300 number, 
we haven't heard from David that he said that, first of all. All we know is what the prosecutor uh, has released, which anyone who's had interaction with the criminal justice system knows that that sometimes can be uh, uh, misrepresented or twisted. And in any case, it's 300 partners over 10 years, uh, which is about two partners a month. And I know neighborhoods where that's considered practically virginal. But we obsess on this idea of number of partners or where they met or whatever, uh, which is really what a lot of these prosecutions are about. There really is a, a fundamental homophobia uh, at their base. The media coverage is so difficult to believe because so many of the media and the people in law enforcement uh, and the judicial system know so little about, uh, about HIV. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of uh, uh, throw that out there and also for people to think about what it is like for someone to get arrested <coughs> excuse me, and to have so little access to justice. If they don't have uh, substantial private resources to hire an attorney, uh, if they can find one with expertise, uh, they're generally dealing with an overworked and underpaid public defender. And these are complicated issues involved, complicated science, complicated ethical issues. Uh, and it's just, it seems almost impossible for people with HIV charged under these statutes to have adequate representation uh, through the public defender system because the public defenders aren't given the resources to be able to do that. And the last comment I wanted to make, and Robert was touching on this, I think, a little bit, was around disclosure. Uh, the disclosure... You know, they're, they're, what constitutes disclosure for one person might be something different for another. And anybody who's ever had a he said, she said, he said conversation about anything in a relationship knows what that means. Uh, it is demeaning uh, to and dehumanizing to have to expect people with HIV to get partners to sign affidavits uh, or otherwise legally document that they disclosed prior to being intimate. And quite frankly, it's arrogant of people who are HIV negative or who haven't been tested, don't know their HIV status, to assume that it is the rest of the world's responsibility to protect their HIV negative status. Uh, that's sort of an arrogance of the well, uh, I call it. That doesn't detract from our responsibility, and, and we all want partners who care for us and won't put us knowingly at harm. Uh, but it takes two to tango, and preventing HIV transmission is a uh, responsibility shared by every person involved in the sexual contact, not just the person who's taken the responsible step to find out their HIV status and, and discover their positive. Uh, so those are the points I wanted to make, and mostly I really wanted to just uh, uh, thank you guys for, for, for covering this and bringing attention to it. And Aaron, I understand you're going to be speaking at the college where the wrestler uh, was charged, which is great. Yes, I was really uh, ecstatic that the, uh, the the school reached out to me, and I feel like it's a step in the right direction, that they understand that this is a bit out of their wheelhouse and that they they aren't as comfortable with this kind of information. And so, you know, they know that I do a lot of work with this um, this area, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to be addressing the students. Yeah, I thought that was that was terrific, um, and I guess I didn't introduce myself for for, for some of your years. I'm with the Sarah Project, where Robert works as well. And uh, anybody wants to 
get continued information about this, they can go to saroproject.com and sign up for our website or watch the short video with Robert and Nick Rhodes and Monique in it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Robert. Or, uh, Sean. Sean. <laughs> no problem. Thanks. There's too many Roberts on here. <laughs> well, I wanted to, you know, Robert, the the other thing, you know, as I see it, being from Missouri, and I think we all can agree Missouri has some of the, the most draconian laws um, that are on the books. Basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, basically the way the law is written in Missouri a person who is living with HIV is forced into celibacy because a condom is no defense. Um, and the way the law is written, if you have sexual contact with another person, that alone is recklessly risking the infection of another with HIV. Am I, am, am I incorrect in that assumption? Well, it says also that, that like that's like the part A, but also the part is that the the person has to have been given consent and they have to and the other person has to um be aware that they're uh, potentially um exposed to HIV but i've looked at this law and of course they have three classes of felonies and class A is which is what Mr. Johnson is being um charged under it's because the victim contracted the HIV, uh, B, if it's just simply non-disclosure, and, um, and for class, felony, uh, the Class A felony is uh, 10 to 30 years, whereas um, if HIV is transmitted, but if it's um, just non-disclosure, it's 5 to 15 years. Uh, and, of course, there is a Class C for those that are in prison that happen to be HIV positive and also uh, acquire other STDs like uh, syphilis and hepatitis and so forth. So, yes, it is pretty much a slippery slope for people living with HIV um, because, I mean, they have three classes of felonies here. And um, it just seems like the mere exposure, or as the prosecutor said, which I thought was just awful, how he talked about just the fact of uh, people who have... Um, have may have some potential uh, that might potentially be a victim or come in contact with a defendant, with the defendant, uh, must step forward immediately. Well, I mean, you're saying potentially. Well, if they have not been harmed, then where's where's the danger? You know, and I just I just feel like they just feed into that to want more people to come forward to say, oh yeah, I was potentially exposed to this person or I've had potential contact with them. Um, that you know, people with HIV can just really just be locked up for simply being positive, and um, that's wrong. It, it, I don't I don't care what people's thoughts about that. That is just wrong because that's just like that you arrested for just being black or arrested for being white. That's something you can't change. Um, right. And that's wrong. That's wrong. And it's not should be not more. It shouldn't just be because oh you're positive. I mean, if a person really harms somebody, there has to be a lot more there that needs to be present. Uh, but just the fact of them being taught of that is absolutely wrong, and there's no, there's no fairness or justice in that. That's so true. Um, tell me, um, 
Robert, uh, is there a website that the, the person, anyone listening live or in the, in the archives later on, um, can go to and actually look up the laws in their own state? I think yeah, I asked Zero you Pro- yeah, project.com we actually have a map on our website. Um, once you go to the website, you have to scroll down, um, and you can click on your state, and we list the statute there um, that's related to HIV, whether it's HIV-specific statute or whether it's a, a general criminal law or, or um, law that relates to HIV. Um, it's there, so you can, you'll see what the statute uh, is, and then you can look it up. Um, and also you can go to the Center for HIV Law and Policy. They have a website there, and they have a resource bank um, that lists this, um, it's called a criminalization manual, and it has all the various states, um, or in fact, all the states, and it lets you know what, the, uh, what that statute says and also lists some of the um, case studies uh, around certain cases uh, that, that have been reported about HIV. So I strongly encourage you to go to our website, look at the map for a quick look, or you can go to the Center for HIV Law and Policies website or look up Positive Justice Project, either one, and look under their resource bank and you'll find it there. Cool. Well, Bert, I want to thank you for joining us and, you know, sharing some more of your story and give us some input on, um, you know, the the recent events that have been going on here. So um, yeah. is there somewhere where people can contact you? Is there something else you want to get out real quick, Ed? Oh, yeah. People can contact us at info at zeroproject.com. Uh, you can send acts anything you want, um, and we'll be uh, gracious enough to respond back and timely. Uh, to your request or your comments or what have you. Um, and also, I wanted to encourage people to continue to talk about this issue with your family and friends and your network and people within your community. It is a hard issue to talk about, but it's, it's definitely worth talking about um, if you care about yourself as a person living with HIV and also if you care about other people living with HIV, um, that you will at least uh, educate yourself about HIV and also about this issue because I'm telling you it's not going away anytime soon. And thank you, Robert and Aaron, for always um, using this platform to address all various issues related to us as people living with HIV. And last thing I want to say is people just think about what is one thing that you can do, one thing that you can do to make it legally safe for a person living and affected by HIV. Thank you. There you go. Thanks again, Robert, for joining us. Thanks, and have Robert. a great night. All right, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, that's Robert Suttle. Again, learn more about the Sarah Project by going to sarahproject.org. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with 20-year survivor Tammy Hall and her amazing work in Iowa. We'll be right back. I'm a YouTube host and a co-host of this program, Pause IM Radio. I'm an international activist, and I'm a writer. But at the end of the day, I'm a person who's living with HIV who is subject to the criminal statutes in my home state of Missouri. And as such, I'm always interested in what's going on as we move forward to try to change criminalization statutes or modernize them. For all the information, I go to seroproject.com. That's S-E-R-O project.com. You'll find the latest information on what's occurring and what needs to occur by a group of individuals who are passionate about modernizing criminal statutes to help reduce stigma 
and stop perpetuating the hate for those simply living with the virus. I encourage you today, if you've not done so, please check out seroproject.com. That's S-E-R-O project.com. And we are back live. This is Pod Time Radio. I'm Robert Brining and joined by the fabulous Aaron Laxton. Hello, Aaron. Hello, 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 hello. I'm excited. This has been good. We've got a lot of good information from Sean and from Robert, and now we're going to have Miss Tammy come on and you know share parts of her story and talk about her work. So please help me welcome Tammy. Oh, hello, Tammy. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Did I pronounce your last name right? Is it is it hot? Hot, yes. Hot. Woo, all right, Tammy Hot, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you on. Oh, thank you for having me. I haven't um, heard your story before, so I'm 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 jam packed and ready. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with um, HIV criminalization in Iowa, and then we'll kind of go back to your personal story towards the end. Okay. Um, well, Chain started talking about uh, advocating to have our law modernized probably about seven years ago. Well, actually, we talked about it after our first day on the Hill where we brought advocates from across Iowa to the Capitol to advocate. The first day on the Hill was in 2005 to advocate for funding to get rid of our ADAP list, uh, waiting list that we had in 2005. And after the first day on the Hill, when we were doing our our recap, the uh, p- president of Chain, executive director Scott Clare, asked, you know, what we, what did we want to do next? And he asked about criminalization. And in 2005, nobody wanted to to touch it. We knew it right. was going to be a very complex issue and uh, so that was the start of our conversation and bringing it up just amongst advocates in Iowa Uh, and it's taken this long to get where we are so uh, it was about in 2008 I believe it was three years ago that we actually had uh, Senator Matt McCoy introduce the first bill to modernize Iowa's HIV specific criminalization law and uh, and we've just been building on our education efforts and uh, getting a little bit further every year uh, to get the legislation passed in Iowa. Now, why is this so important to you? One, because I know uh, Nick Rhodes personally is a, a wonderful man and a, and a good friend. Um, I met him after he... Uh, got out of prison, and, and so at first I just thought that, you know, I, I was doing this because so many people I know of who have been impacted by these laws, and it wasn't until just this last year that I realized that how personally I was impacted. Um, yesterday, recognized uh, 17 years ago yesterday, my husband died of AIDS, and just thinking back to that time, you know, his death certificate says PCP, AIDS, and kidney failure. What a death certificate doesn't mention are the other things that are are underlying causes of death, which for Roger being, uh, we lived in Texas, he was, I say, a redneck homophobic cowboy. 
from Parker County, Texas, and he hated AIDS. He hated living with AIDS. Um, and so the underlying uh, causes of death were, were the discrimination, the rejection, the stigma and fear. And then it was the fear of criminalization. Um, Roger and I got married in uh, November of 1993, shortly after we were diagnosed. Um, and I tried to convince him to, I'm from Iowa, so we came up to Iowa to get married. I tried to convince him to move to Iowa where we would have access to better health care than what we were having in Texas. And he stayed here for a little bit, but then, you know, there was talk about criminalization laws and all of that, and I don't know if there were any states with them back in 1993. But he, HIV, and by the time he was diagnosed, he had a T-cell count of 12, and, uh, you know, he was diagnosed August 4th, 1993. We were, you know, had our wedding plans set for November 27th, and the doctor said he wouldn't live long enough for us to get married, that we might as well cancel our plans. So, you know, when we came back up here, we we just, we knew nothing about AIDS. And we had heard this, and he had gotten it in his mind that I wanted him to stay here in Iowa and that my family would talk me into charging him with criminal transmission. And so he had a nervous breakdown, and he ended up in the hospital. So this, you know, it's become very personal for me when I think back to this has affected me. And so I'm fighting even harder to get this law changed because nobody should have, you know, that feeling that you have to look over your shoulder all the time. And, and you know, there are cases where, you could have disclosed to the person, but you can't prove that you've disclosed. And you can still be charged and you can still go to prison. And that's just wrong. It's, these laws further stigmatize people living with HIV, and, and we don't need anything else to further stigmatize us. We've got enough. So it's time for these laws to be changed, to catch up with the, the new science, the new meds that are available, and what we know about the modes of transmission. So... Tammy, this is Aaron from uh, Missouri, and we've actually we've taken our lead here in Missouri from, you know, uh, Iowa has really forged the way for other states, so thank you for everything that you and your team of advocates are doing. How big of a blow was it, um, not only to Nick personally, but to you as an advocate in the state of Iowa when the appellate court ruled um, against um, Nick and upheld his um, sentence. It was very disappointing. Um, we were really hoping that the the court would look at the the law as it was written and look at the intent and and the modes of transmission and the risk factors. Considering he had an undetectable viral load, we were hoping. Uh, so it it was very disappointing. For, for advocates and I'm uh it but it just renews our our efforts to to continue with the education process and uh and to keep keep fighting and hopefully we'll get even further this year than we have in the past uh two years. That's awesome. I I think you know when any of us saw that 
the uh, what the appellate court, you know, when they upheld the the uh, the sentence for Nick, I think we were all taken aback. Um, speak about, if you will, I know that whenever um, you know I make trips up to Capitol Hill, uh, as no doubt when you have conversations with legislators there in your home state, there's there is definitely a disconnect between um, legislators who are using the new science that we have, the new science such as the you know, HVTN051 study that shows when a person has a suppressed viral load, there is less than a you know, 2 to 3% risk of transmission. So is the conversation that we're having with legislators to try to get them to buy into this new science? And if so, is this a conversation that they're willing to have to consider this new science? Some of them are, uh, some aren't. What our message is to legislators uh, is that this is a bad public health policy, that it undermines the public health goals of getting people tested in treatment and in care. And we now know that, uh, you know, these laws are uh, keeping people from getting tested. We have had some lawyers tell people don't get tested. So, you you know, uh, the saying, take the test, risk arrest. And we know that's terrible public health policy, not because it also, we know that if we get people in treatment, then the chances of transmission decreases. So that's the message that we've tried to carry to the legislators when we talk to them, going, you know, you might have had good intentions when you put this law on the books, but uh, it's not doing what you wanted. It's not preventing the transmission of HIV because it's keeping people in the shadows and uh, they're not getting treatment and care. And that, when you go from that aspect, because we we tried to, you know, this law is just wrong and that needs to be changed, that didn't go over. But when you go and we show them, you know, the public health aspect, it resonates with them a little bit more. Um, so we've had, had success with that message that it's bad public health policy. It seems like a lot of people don't realize how it's transmitted. I seem, I seem like that seems to be the biggest thing is people are confused. They think, you know, that it's transmitted through, you know, still the toilet seats or the touching and the hugging or just kissing or, you know, things of that nature. People don't seem to be educated, and I think that's where everybody seems to fall short because they feed into that being scared and, and, you know, piling on the fuel of stigma, you know what I mean, by, by not knowing. And if people were just educated, it would be a lot easier. I mean, that's my yes, opinion. I, I think with, and that's why we've, we've really ramped up our education efforts and trying to do community forums across the state to, to reach out to community members. And which is why, I mean, I, saw Robert uh, at a meeting a while back, and I and I told him his bravery along with Nick and Monique sharing their very personal stories on in the documentary HIV is Not a Crime helps me do my work because people watch that documentary and they see how this law has impacted, and it makes a difference. It makes my job a lot easier, so I appreciate Nick and, and Robert and Monique so much for 
for sharing their personal stories that had to be so hard to do. So I think that's key, but I think where we're coming from is since HIV has been around for 30 years, everyone assumes that everybody is educated, but we're going backwards. People are, I think the stigma is getting worse, um, and, and the lack of education is increasing because people aren't talking about it because they assume everybody knows, and, and even in schools it's not being talked about or just briefly mentioned. And uh, I'm afraid we're putting a new generation at risk because we're not talking to our kids about how to protect themselves from all STDs along with HIV. All right, Tammy, I'd like to remind the listeners, this is Pause I Am Radio, brought to you each and every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For you listeners who would like to join in, you may join the conversation at 347-215-9442 or also on social media, Facebook, and Twitter, and on Pause I Am, social network, pauseim.org. We're going to have a brief break, and we'll be right back. Coffee with cream? Thanks. Here's your cappuccino, miss. Look, let's talk. Did you know that your doctor doesn't necessarily test you for STDs? GYT. Get yourself tested and get yourself talking. Have an honest, open conversation with your healthcare provider about STDs. Ask to be tested. Visit GYTnow.org to find an STD testing location near you. A message from CDC. All right, Tammy, we're back. One of the questions I had was, as you've been on this journey of trying to modernize the criminal statutes in your home state of Iowa, uh, what has been the most surprising, let me rephrase that, who has been the most surprising um, allies and who has been the most surprising enemies of um, modernizing criminal statutes? You know, it's it's amazing, and and I've learned this from uh, just advocating how long I have uh, with Chain, is you can never assume just by party affiliation uh, which way a legislator will go. You can never go in assuming that just because they have a D or an R behind you that they'll support you or, or they'll be against you because we've had, we actually got a lot of bipartisan support last year in our efforts to get the the modernization bill that we uh, had introduced. And so that's the big thing is you can never assume because People have personal stories and backgrounds that you're not aware of. One of our greatest supporters, his uh, I believe it was his cousin, um, had died from AIDS. And so he was very supportive of our efforts. And uh, so that's that's one lesson that I would uh, want to share with people. Is never assume when you go in talking to somebody that they're automatically going to reject uh, what you have to say. And the supporters, you know, I think one of the biggest things is it was at last year's Pride events we had uh, a petition for people to sign, and we had the sign, HIV is not a crime, please sign 
petition and seeing people who were across the uh, the street who would come over to sign the petition just because, you know, they believed that the law needed to be changed and to see how many different people from different backgrounds who would come over uh, was was great. I wish everybody living with HIV could have seen that and seen how much support there is out there for us. It's awesome. I've also found that, you know, as as we have the conversations, I can, you know, speaking just about the HI or the um, gay community, you know, here in St. Louis, it's a very polarizing topic. Um, you know, even within the gay community, you would you would think sometimes it's a no-brainer that people understand that HIV criminalization it, it has negative repercussions and it has implications to all of us, especially for those living with HIV. But what I found is that it's very uh, the media and our society has done a really great job of villainizing HIV, and as a result, anyone who's trying to modernize these laws. Um, you know, the first thing that we hear is, well, shouldn't people be punished if they're out there maliciously spreading HIV? Is that something that you hear quite often? Oh, yes, absolutely. And and just talking about media in, in the documentary, HIV is not a crime, the one question, the first question after I played it at an educational forum is I asked them, I, I'm like, aren't you afraid after you see this? According to the media, you know, people living with HIV were very dangerous. The different media uh, comments in that, you know, danger to society and or even the headlines when when Nick was arrested, a uh, Plainfield man infects somebody with HIV. Well, he didn't infect. There, You know, there's a big difference. There's a lot of uh, misinformation that comes from the media and unfortunately, that's the education that people have is just what they hear in the media or what the headline that they see. You know, it's not often that uh, there's a news story about people who, living with HIV who are, are trying to, that are living their life just like everybody else. Um, you know, our stories aren't, aren't shared. So the only stories that people hear about are people who are arrested. And so that mm-hmm. makes makes it very hard for us. And uh, the media is one of, you know, the toughest people, uh, groups of people that are stigmatizing us, that, that we really need to figure out a way to educate them um, on these issues. I... Uh... I, we recently did a, uh, a news piece for a local, uh, a national outlet about being in a discordant relationship. My partner is um, is negative, and you know something that Robert said earlier is you know it's very you know uh, clinical and sterile um, trying to have that intimacy when hold on first we have to have this conversation. Um, you know, and then you got to sign this paper. Yeah, you know, I would be lying if I said that, you know, well, two things. I mean, I'm the first person to say that, that you know, I like bareback sex. Um, I drew a lot of heat for that, which I think we have to have strategies to address that. But the other thing is, is that, you know, for me as a positive person, um, even though I am completely virally suppressed and 
you know, I'm virtually known, I mean, by a lot of people, I'm certainly not a celebrity or anything like that. So it would be very hard for a person to say they, they are unaware of my status. I would be remiss if I said that after hearing stories like Robert's and Nick's and so many countless others, um, if I didn't think twice about, you know, well, what could happen? You know, me and my relationship are fine now, but, you know, what happens if a month from now when we break up, you know, God forbid, what happens if I get reported to the police, even though I've told and I've done everything that I was supposed to do? So I think a lot of people don't take into consideration because right now their relationships may be perfect. They may be living in like this utopian dream, but that utopian dream can come to an end real quick. Yeah, for for HIV positive people, I mean, we're all one bad breakup away from, you know, potentially being charged, which is wrong. I mean, and and I, I believe it was Robert or was it Sean that said, you know, the burden of proof should be on the prosecutor, but it's not with HIV because of so many stigmas and the discrimination and, and just the fear still after 30 years that we're fighting, the burden is on us to prove that we have to prove that we disclosed or we, you know, it's, it, we're not innocent until proven guilty, and which is part of the problem why people aren't getting tested and, and it's, it's that vicious circle that we live in with, with the stigma and that, that we are, you know, one bad breakup away from potentially being a felon. And so that's that's another reason why we have to uh, – that's why we've determined that, you know, one of our strategies was to do more community forums because the more people – we have to educate people. Um, the more people who know and who can advocate for us, we are – very proud in Iowa that we've we've been able to build this incredible coalition of organizations that are supporting us and who are are advocating on our behalf. Um, we just had the League of Women Voters of Iowa join, and in 2014 on our in Iowa's Lobby Day, which will be February 11th, they will be there with us um, advocating for Iowa's. Uh, to have Iowa's law modernized, and that is just incredible because it's it's not just people in the community who are fighting for this. This is these are you know women around the state that just believe in social justice issues, and that's what we have to do is to continue to build those relationships and uh, get more education out there that people realize that yes, we are living longer because we're t on medication that suppresses our viral load, so the chances of transmission are low. People don't understand that at all. That takes that takes a long time for that to sink in because we have been demonized for so long. So it, it takes a lot of education. I know I have been very, um, you know, I've, I've engaged a lot. Uh, I've worked with the Missouri Task Force here and, you know, I approach things in a very act up sort of way. I think actions do have a place. Now I know that typically hasn't been something that has been done in your home state do you think that actions or demonstrations um, help or hurt uh, the cause of trying to modernize um, uh, these statutes? You know, the the strong 
advocate in, in me, you know, I would love to do a huge action, but that's just not the way Iowans operate. We're we're very polite and uh uh oh, I'm trying to think of the word to use. Actions here would not go over well. I think it would turn a lot of people off and uh would not help our efforts in Iowa and that's just because that's the way uh Iowans are. Um there are times that I, you know, would really like to do one but we also have to weigh public opinion and and what that that action would do. And so here in Iowa, I, it wouldn't be received well, I don't think. So that's where we just go in calmly. We have everybody with their information packets, their fact sheets. And, you know, I just say, tell your story because that's what they'll remember and leave them the mm-hmm. fact sheet. They have to look at it at least twice. One when you hand it to them, and two when they throw it away. So hopefully, in one of those glances, they might, uh, you know, read through it and and pick up on some of the facts. But they're going to remember your story, and that's the important thing. Uh, I think when when you're talking to a legislator, is don't get caught up in in all of the facts. You just have to uh, share your personal stories, um, and that makes a difference. We have a, uh, a a person inside the chat room, and Ania Smith, um, who said, "This is the second wave. We are living much longer, and more and more are receiving an HIV diagnosis. Time to discuss this stuff." And they go on to say, "The gay male community is the worst." Um, yeah, I mean, I think HIV diagnoses, especially for the ages of 13 to 24 and in the African-American community and Latina populations, um, we are seeing increase um, increases. What role do you think that criminalization uh, plays in new infections, uh, Tammy? You know, I think it has a, a large part to do with it. Um, you know, Along with, because it brings so much stigma to the disease, uh, and it also brings a false sense of security for people who are negative, because they assume they hear, you know, when they hear the the headlines uh, in the news, they assume if you're HIV positive, one that you're that you know your status, and then they assume that so if you don't tell me that you're positive, that you must be negative. And we know one in five people who are positive are unaware of their status. So I think it gives that false sense of security to people that, well, if you had it, you'd ha- you have to tell me. And so they're not doing, as Sean said, taking responsibility for their own sexual health. And the entire burden with these laws are on the HIV-positive community. And that's, um, you know, in our prevention messages, that's what we need to get out, is that everyone should be responsible for their own sexual health, not just the person who is HIV positive, because you never know, you know, what somebody has. We don't have a look anymore. We're we're living longer. We're living uh, healthy lives. I mean, nobody assumes that when I walk into a room that I've been living with HIV for 20 years. I, you know, they're just shocked. Uh, one because I'm a female, but two, uh, I definitely don't. We don't have a look. Um, I'm just a 
normal person living my life. Well, speaking about your life, you know, you said you've been living with HIV for 20 years. Were you always active in the community, or, like, what made you become an activist? I wasn't. For the first six years, we didn't tell anybody um, that I was positive. When we lived in Texas, uh, we definitely didn't tell anybody. Roger did not want anybody to know, and and it was just, I think, a lot because we weren't educated. You know, it's something that wasn't supposed to ever happen to somebody like me, you know. Uh, We always like to believe that it happens to bad people, uh, and I wasn't a bad person, and he wasn't a bad person, and and so many, nobody's a bad person. Nobody deserves this. Um, So for the first six years, we didn't tell anybody. And then it was when my son was in starting school. Um, he'll be 17 in, on December 21st. He was born two months and nine days after his dad died. And I, at that time, even back uh, in uh, 1999 or no, 2000, whatever, when he started preschool, I still believed at that time that when he was in junior high or high school, I was going to be, you know, very sick and possibly die. I was not planning on living long enough to see him graduate. So living in small town Iowa, which if you being from Missouri, I'm sure it's similar, uh, I knew (laughs) there would be talk. So at that point in time, I decided that I wanted to be proactive. And I wanted, plus I was always concerned, my greatest concern was how is this going to affect my child? You know, say whatever you want to me or about me. I could care less. You would mess with my son, and I'm going to have to hurt you. So I wanted to be (laughs) proactive um, to try to protect him. So I wanted to send out a letter to the parents of his classmates and let them know that I was positive, he was ne- Adrian was negative, and that there's you know the the his classmates were safe with me being in the classroom with with him being in the classroom, and because I wanted to volunteer and I you know and the, and the first thing I say between the medical field and for me it was the school have been the most stigmatizing um, institutions to to deal with. And that and that started it. And then from there, my, my local ASO asked if I would speak to the colleges when they went there. And it just started from there. And I say, uh, you know, it took six years for me to speak out, but I haven't been quiet since. So I, I just uh, am continuing. Um, my son had, you know, we had problems uh, a couple times with some kids, uh, but overall it's been okay. He's he goes to the lobby days with me. He advocates, um, and uh, everything is is good. And now, he will graduate next year, and I'll be here to see it. So, well, that's, that's awesome. So, Tammy, oh, I have a, a really tough question, and you feel free not to answer. Um, okay. I, I know that sometimes, for all of us who are activists and advocates, um, we live our life, you know out loud and and we use our own selves as examples how i mean has it been challenging for you you do have a son um being in the public eye um you know have you worried about how it would affect him and how others would interact with him 
you know, because, you know, his mother was such an outspoken advocate and activist. Um, has that been a concern? Oh, that was my biggest concern, um, you know, is would it would he ever be invited to birthday parties? Would somebody come to our house for his birthday parties? You know, would he have sleepovers? Uh, those were my biggest concerns. And luckily, um, there are some incredible people in this community who have been very supportive and, you know, have and, and educated because we did educate. It took a long process. Um, to educate the the school district and and uh, and that, but I think that paid off. But that was my biggest concern was that you know people wouldn't come to his birthday parties or he wouldn't be invited, and uh, that hasn't been a problem for us. But that is, and then I had it just recently too with um, you know. Never planned on living this long. What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Uh, and that that I start in the workforce, and it's like, okay, do I put my HIV advocacy and my volunteer work on a resume, or is that going to hurt me? And right. uh, you know, what job can I get? You know, people still freak out if you're, you know, no surveys have shown, and we did one in Iowa stigma uh, survey of, uh, you know, people working with food. We're, you know, we're not supposed to work with food. We're not supposed to work with kids. We're not supposed to, you know, even in a grocery store, people were like, no. And I'm like, you're touching canned goods. How can you possibly think that you can transmit HIV that way? But from the, excuse me, the lack of education, and uh, lack of awareness and, and how HIV is actually transmitted is a huge concern. Um, luckily, I was able to get a job with Chain, so I'm working in the field that I love, and I, I have a job that I love. I'm very lucky um, to have that opportunity. Now, did you experience any kind of stigma, or did you not put your HIV work on your resume? Because I actually... Just about a year ago, I started looking for a job again, and I was hesitant about putting my HIV stuff on my resume. Part of me said, yes, it shows that I'm a leader. It shows that I, you know, and, and you know, somebody who's going to do something, I'm not just going to sit around. And then I kind of felt that I was well qualified for certain jobs, but I wasn't getting hiring because of that. And then once I removed it, I immediately got a call. Yeah, well, and and the the part time job that I had gotten first, and and I still have it along with the work that I do with Chain, is they weren't. Uh, it's a retail merchandiser, so I just go into stores and and set up new planograms or do cut ins, uh, and that I didn't have to put anything down, and and I don't even think I had to list references, and and I didn't put anything HIV on my application. Um, because I knew for that kind of a job I wouldn't need it. So, but I, I and so I didn't go for maybe some jobs that I would have because I that yeah that worried me. Um, so yeah. I didn't go for something that I would be more qualified for, um, and that just because of that fear and which you know tore me up because as an advocate I'm like. Screw it, go for it. Um, but then, you know, it doesn't take much. Even no matter how much we are out there uh, fighting 
for, you know, to get rid of the stigma and, and doing the education, how fast you can go back to that, to feeling stigmatized and feeling bad and, and feeling that discrimination and, and a lot of the internal stigma. It just it takes one look or one comment from somebody and it takes you back down. It, it's amazing, even after all these years and, and being out there, you know, it still can take you down really fast. It still can take me down uh, in that. And it drives me crazy because I'm like, they shouldn't let it, but it does. I know, and it's something that's difficult to deal with when newly diagnosed. So if somebody is living um, in Iowa and is newly diagnosed, what advice would you give them? What Where would you point them to? I would, the advice that I would give is, one, you know, you have to take the time to to educate yourself and, and to do it slow. And um, But we have great organizations. Uh, we have some wonderful uh, ASOs in our state. And then we have, Pitch, which is the uh, president of, and, and we're a social support group. There are people out there that we're willing, who are long-term survivors, we're willing to talk to people newly diagnosed. And we have a wellness summit annually for people living with HIV/AIDS, and and we open it up first to people who haven't attended before and people who are newly diagnosed, just so that those of us who have been living longer with HIV, we can be there to answer their questions, but we also learn from them because it's remembering back 20 years, you know, all those fears and those feelings, it helps remind us, I think it helps us be better advocates when when we meet people who are newly diagnosed so that we, we remember what some of the feelings that they have also. So it's a great time to learn from each other. So I, I think it's it's key to, at your own pace, because I never tell anybody that, you know, you have to disclose and then that's the right thing to do. It's, some, it's a very personal decision, and I respect people who they can't. Um, you have to look at all the aspects in your life, your family, your job, everything to determine if, if speaking out is right for you. Uh, but there is support in the state and there are people who are living with HIV who are willing to help uh, and and that's the key is just to reach out to people and uh, we're, we're there to help. You're not alone. All right. Well, that sounds like a great way to end this amazing show this evening. Tammy Hall, I want to thank you for calling in and, and joining us and, you know, sharing your wisdom with us. You know, I appreciate you know, long-term survivors, people still sharing their story and putting themselves out there, it's important. So I want to say thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Well, well, anytime we'll have to have you back sometime. You have yourself a great okay. evening. Thanks, you too. Thanks. So, again, I want to thank our special guests, Robert Suttle and Tammy Hall and Sean for calling into the show. Aaron, great show, man. You too. It's been great. Yeah, it's a good time. Food. I know. We want to invite the guests back, or the listeners back. Next week we will have the founder of the Mr. Friendly Campaign, David Watts from uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. And then the following week 
the uh, I don't have the date here in front of me. Uh, the, the next 27th. Sunday, the 27th, yes, we will have the award-nominated actor from How to Survive a Plague, Peter Staley, um, and he will be talking with us. Um, if people want to find out more about you, how may they do so? Uh, they can go to pausim.org. And if they want to find out about me, just go to YouTube, My HIV Journey, or Aaron Laxon on Facebook or Twitter. Any parting words, Mr. Robert? Have a good night, and we'll speak to you next Sunday. All right. Goodbye. Well, this has been another 90-minute episode of Your Dose of Hope, brought to you each and every Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But if you didn't get a chance to listen to it live, you may also go to iTunes and download this episode at any time by simply typing in, pause I am. You may also... Get involved in the conversation at pausim.org. That's the social network. As well as social media on Twitter and Facebook. You'll find Robert and myself both there. As well as Pause I Am radio show. We have some amazing shows coming up in the near future. With award-nominated actor from How to Survive a Plague, we have Peter Staley as well as David Watt, who is the creator and founder of Mr. Friendly, anti-stigma campaign. Is there someone in your community or your state that you would like to hear more about, you'd like us to interview? Shoot us an email and let us know. We hope the upcoming week is amazing for you, and we invite you to come back next Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, to listen to more of Pies I Am. For Robert, this is Aaron Lackton, signing off. Good night. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.